passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And for the rest of us, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 2 Samuel 15. That's where we'll be this morning. And uh, as, you're, as you're finding 2 Samuel, I just kind of want to frame this morning's uh, text in, I guess, the context of my last 24 hours or so. So uh, yesterday, I made a quick trip to my hometown for my aunt's funeral. And uh, as I was preparing for that, that's, that's been on the radar for a couple of weeks now. Um, this past week, I received news that a friend from high school down in southwest Iowa, his wife also had died um, after a very short 37-day battle um, with cancer. And that funeral was also yesterday down in southwest Iowa. And uh, as I was preparing this text, as I was, I was working my way through 2 Samuel 15, um, as you can probably imagine, that, that was just at the back of my mind, um, this idea of loss and affliction and suffering and, and uh, very, very real things that we have to deal with um, that seem to be a part and parcel of life. And as I was looking at, at this text, it was, it was hard for me to not look at the events of 2 Samuel 15 through that lens. Because 2 Samuel 15 tells us the story of uh, David suffering and David facing a lot of, of affliction. And it all comes at the hands of his own son. And as I was, I was looking at this text, it, it seems to be a text that's like filled with despair. And yet, as I was, I was working my way through it, I, I just, I, I found a great deal of hope and solace from a few markers that point us to the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus when we face suffering and when we face affliction. And so, that's kind of what I want us to, to have at the back of our mind as we look at this text this morning. Let's go ahead and jump in. 2 Samuel chapter 15, it breaks into two sections. The first, the first section of 2 Samuel 15 uh, tells Ab, uh, of Absalom's rebellion against his father. The second is focused on David's conversations. He has three conversations, three interactions on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And so that's going to be our, our um, roadmap for this morning as we approach this text. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's Word? Father, we, um, we delight in the fact that, that you know us, and more than knowing us, you know the needs of every single person here this morning. God, you know the pain, you know the suffering, you know the hardship facing each of us, whether it's the anxiety of, of just trying to make ends meet, whether it's chronic pain, illness, broken relationships, a thousand different other things. God, we are grateful that you do not count these sufferings as trivial, but God, you tell us to release these burdens to you because you care for us. God, we marvel at your goodness, and we ask that you would use this text for your glory and for the cultivation of an increasing hope in you, a longing for your return. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly in your word this morning. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. 
All right, well, the first 12 verses of this chapter are focused on Absalom's rebellion against his father. Remember what we've been looking at over the past few weeks. All the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, David kind of ruins his entire life, ruins uh, his family as well uh, by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering Uriah as a part of his cover-up. He repents, but God says there will still be consequences for this sin. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Absalom, who murders his brother after his brother raped his sister, and he was in this self-imposed exile. But after three years of, of living in exile, David decides to bring him back to Jerusalem, and, and yet their relationship is not restored. David grants his son the access to Jerusalem, and yet he refuses to see him for two years. And at the end of last week, 2 Samuel chapter 14, we see Absalom, he kind of comes to this, this moment where he just demands resolution. He says, Dad, I, I need you to either kill me, put me to death for what I've done, or, or pardon me, welcome me back as your heir. And so that's what David does. David officially recognizes Absalom as his heir once more, but as we saw last week, this is just ceremonial. His heart's not in it. There's still this rift between the two of them. And that rift is what will sow the seeds for what we see this morning. Verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now let's go ahead and pause here. Because already right here, this, this is significant. Some time has passed before, or since Absalom was officially recognized by David. And one of the first things that, that Absalom does is he finds a chariot and he hires an entourage. And he has that entourage announce his presence throughout Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing about chariots. They, they weren't something that Israelites normally used, at least not at this time. That was something that was very common of their enemies in that day. Part of the reason why chariots weren't very common is because Jerusalem was built on a mountain. Not at all practical to have a chariot. And yet it would have certainly drawn attention, wouldn't it have? It would have been the thing that caught everyone's eyes. Remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago, 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. We're given this description of Absalom's appearance, and he's beautiful, and he knows it. And Absalom continues to play into this. He's looking the part of a king. Everywhere Absalom goes in Jerusalem, it would be hard not to be impressed with the crown prince and his power and his beauty and his authority. Already right here, we can see the beginning of Absalom's rebellion. Remember Israel's desire for a king. We saw this over a year ago when we were in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8 the, the people of Israel long for a king. What type of king did they want? We read this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people said, There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And even right here at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're left asking this question, is there a better candidate for a king than Absalom? Is there anyone who fits the bill for what a king should look like and should be than this man? 
He's exactly what the people want. Verse 2. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gates. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Now, in those days, the king was the chief judge of the land. We actually saw that last week in First or Second Samuel chapter 14, when David hears the case of this woman from Tekoa, even though it was made up. And yet Absalom sees this opportunity to win the hearts of the people, not just the hearts of Jerusalem, the, the chariot, the entourage is doing a pretty good job of impressing people in Jerusalem, but now to, to expand, to capture the hearts of the entire nation. And so when people would come to Jerusalem, arriving, asking for this judgment from David, Absalom would get to them before him. When they would first enter the city, Absalom would show interest in their reason for visiting and when they would tell him of their dispute, Absalom would affirm them in their position, regardless of how ridiculous or how wrong they might have been. Isn't that exactly what we want? When we find ourselves in having an issue with someone else or we're in a dispute with someone else, we want someone to say, you know what, you're exactly right. And they're wrong. And you deserve what you want. Of course, there's a problem, Absalom would point out. I have no power to do anything. In fact, no one has the power to do anything because even if your case is good, there's, there's no one to hear it. You deserve justice. You deserve what you want, but no one can give it to you. But Absalom wasn't just a person to point out what was wrong. He would also point out a solution. Oh, if only I were the judge. If only I had the power. Then I would give you what you deserve. Absalom's a master of deceit, isn't he? Man, he's playing people to get exactly what he wants. He simultaneously discredits his father and ingratiates himself with every person he meets. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, so not 1 Samuel chapter 8, which we looked at a moment ago, but 2 Samuel chapter 8, we're given this description of David's kingdom. It's described as a kingdom of justice. We're, we're told that, that David is a man of integrity, and that shows in how he rules, and yet Absalom implies that his justice is not possible. That justice does not exist in his father's kingdom. If only I were judge. And day after day, year after year, Absalom does this. But that's not all. Verse 5 tells us that while the, the, king, the crown prince was, was impressive with his, his entourage and his chariots in verse 1, he also was a man of the people. Because whenever someone would come near to him to pay homage and they begin to bow down before him as the future king, he would put out his hand. 
And that means he, he would either stop them from, from bowing down, or once they had already bowed down, he'd lift them up out of a kneeling position, and he would kiss them, and he'd embrace them, and basically say, I'm no better than you. I'm one of you. I'm just like you. I don't know if you realize uh, we're entering into election season here in the state of Iowa. Parallels write themselves, right? It's hard not to see that there's nothing new under the sun. Absalom, thousands of years ago, a guy who pretends to be a man of the people, who feeds into discontent with the status quo, who makes promises he has no intention of keeping. But it works. He says exactly what the people want to hear. And so it's no wonder that the first paragraph here ends with this summary. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. We'll soon see that he does this for four years. And over the course of four years, Israel falls in love with Absalom. They become disillusioned with David. What has David done for us lately? They want someone else. Now, many of you know I'm an Iowa fan. I have a running joke with some friends that the, the best quarterback on Iowa's roster is always the backup, without fail. Because one, it, it couldn't possibly get worse than it already is. And two, there's this hope for someone better, something better. And that's what we see from the people of Israel in this moment. They're, they're longing for something better. They, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. They, they've had enough of David. They've had enough of his kingdom. And it's time for a change. Don't read that into my position on Iowa football, by the way. Just separate that. <laughs> it is hard to do. I wrote that after, before yesterday's game. My goodness. Talk about suffering. All right, I, I'm, I should not. Okay, let's get back to the text here. After four years, Absalom is, is finally ready to make his move for the throne. He's waited two years. We saw this a couple, years, a couple weeks ago. He waits two years before he puts his, his brother to death. He kills his brother. He has no problem waiting four years before he can go ahead and kill his dad by stealing the throne from him and hopefully putting him to death. Let's jump into verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur and Aram, saying, if the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Now, if you've been following along in 2 Samuel, you'll see that history repeats itself. Just like in 2 Samuel chapter 13, Absalom lies to his father in order to get out of Jerusalem. He asks his father for permission to do something, this time traveling to Hebron, and his father says, yes, go ahead. He claims he wants to go to the city that he was born in, actually the former capital of Israel, because he says, I made a vow when I was in exile some seven years earlier that I would go and finally, I would worship God if he would bring me back to the land. Seven years earlier. You might be saying, well, what exactly took him so long? And that's, of course, exactly the point. Absalom has no qualms with pretending to be religious if it means that he can get what he wants. 
So he sets off for Hebron, verse 10. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Each of these verses actually tells us something significant about Absalom's plan to strengthen his rebellion. So first, we see in verse 10 that he sees these secret messengers, literally the word is spies, throughout all the land in order to sow seeds of rebellion. Now here's the reality. Absalom's conspiracy was relatively small. And yet the people of Israel were favorably disposed to him. And so by sending people throughout the land who are a part of the conspiracy and giving the signal, raise up a crowd, get people to start chanting, Absalom is king in Hebron. It'll look as though the entire nation is behind him, that this plan is insurmountable. Absalom actually does the exact same thing in verse 11. He brings 200 men from Jerusalem to Hebron. Many of them most likely were a part of David's government. They were government officials for David. They knew nothing about what was about to happen. And yet by bringing them, it would have thrown everyone into confusion. They knew nothing about this plot against David, but it didn't look that way. It looked as though they were in. It looked as though the government itself was going along with Absalom in his plan to usurp his father. And then we get to verse 12. Verse 12, we see that David's best counselor, Ahithophel, remember what we saw a couple weeks about Ahithophel, a couple weeks ago about this man? Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And he decides to join Absalom in Hebron. You can probably guess as to why. Notice that the text tells us that Ahithophel joins Absalom from Gilo, not from Jerusalem. The text isn't explicit, but it's hinting that Ahithophel was already in on this conspiracy. He'd already left Jerusalem sometime beforehand so that he could join Absalom in Hebron easily. And it was at this point, at least to this point, a bloodless coup. Because now the entire nation belongs to Absalom and David doesn't even realize it. You know, in the year 49 BC, Julius Caesar made his way toward Rome. He, he's, he's moving toward Rome at the head of his army in order to overthrow the government, to, to place himself on the throne as king. And since that moment, the fateful crossing of the Rubicon River has become an idiom for crossing the point of no return. And, and here, 900 years ago, we could have said instead of crossing the Rubicon, we could have just said, you know, going to Hebron. Because that's exactly what taken, takes place here. Absalom has crossed the Rubicon. There's, there's no coming back from this. He's installed himself as a rival king to his father. And now we ask, well, how will David respond? What will David do? And that's what the second section here of 2 Samuel 15 is all about. We see three encounters from David, of David with people on the outskirts of Jerusalem. 
Verse 13. And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down on us ruin and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house, and the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So word reaches David from Hebron. Absalom has claimed the throne. Absalom's planned a confusion. It works to perfection. A great number of his officials have joined Absalom in Hebron, so David assumes the worst. After all, they traveled with Absalom. Perhaps they're with Absalom. They're a part of this. And then word begins trickling in from all over the nation of these declarations from people in all the villages, all the cities, uh, declaring that Absalom is the king. And so David acts quickly here. He decides to leave Jerusalem. And, and some would say, well, this is an act of cowardice. Stay and fight. But it's actually wise and loving from David here. It's wise because he has no idea how loyal Jerusalem is to him. So he decides to flee before he can find out the hard way. More than that, he knows that once Absalom comes to Jerusalem, he, he's gonna, once he gets there, a siege will ensue. And that will be miserable. It will be awful for the people of Jerusalem. And so the best thing he can do for the people that he loves is to leave Jerusalem in this moment. Now, as David leaves Jerusalem, we begin to see that maybe things aren't as bad as, as it might seem at first. After all, there, there's still a, a number of people who have sided with David that are going to leave Jerusalem with him. David also seems to think that, that there's a chance that he'll return to Jerusalem relatively quickly, so he leaves some of his concubines, basically second-class wives, in Jerusalem to watch over his house. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. And on the way out of Jerusalem, David stops and he watches the people pass before him to take stock of those who remain loyal. And that's where we have these three encounters. The first one takes place starting in verse 18. And all his servants passed by him and all the Carathites and all the Pelathites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gittite, why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us since I go I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Now significantly, this first encounter is about a bunch of non-Israelites. The Carathites, the Pelathites, they're not a part of the, tri the tribes of Israel, but the text focuses on this group of Gittites and their leader, Ittai. Gittites were from the city of Gath, this Philistine city, Goliath's hometown. Apparently, a large number of, of people from the land of the Philistines had abandoned the Philistine gods, and they decided to cling to the God of Israel, and they defected to David. And their defection must have been relatively recent because David encourages them to remain in Jerusalem. They, they left behind the Philistines. They weren't, they weren't signing up to, to live on the run. 
And so David assures their leader that, you know what, I'm not going to bear you any ill will if you remain in Jerusalem where you have some sort of safety, some sort of security for your families. How does the man respond? Verse 21. But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook, the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Ittai, in response to David saying, hey, you know what? You can just stay here. He, he, he declares his allegiance. And notice that he takes an oath in the name of the Lord and also in the name of David. Ittai is a foreigner. He was born outside the promises of God, and yet now he's grasping something that the people of Israel have failed to see. At least the vast majority have. He's grasping that the Lord is at work amongst his people primarily through his anointed king, through David. And for Ittai to turn his back on David is to turn his back on the Lord himself. And he will never do that, even though it means exile for him, even though it means exile for his men and for their families, it's better to have nothing and yet be obedient to the Lord than it is to turn your back on him. And so David and his men, they continue east toward the Jordan River. On the way there, they cross this dried-up river. It's called the Kidron. Notice that the text tells us that they are headed back to the wilderness. And I, I added the word back there. They're headed back into the wilderness. Don't miss the significance of that word wilderness. The wilderness played a very important part in Israel's history. After God rescued Israel out of Egypt, they lived in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered into the promised land. And it was after those 40 years that they at long last entered the land that God had promised their ancestors centuries earlier. And I don't know if we can stress enough how important this land was for the ancient Israelites. The land was the fulfillment of God's promises. The land was a microcosm of God's promises as a whole. The gift of the land was, was proof positive that this God keeps his promises. And so to go back into the wilderness, it's almost as if David and those who are following him are going backwards when it comes to God's plan. It's almost as if the, the promises of God are unraveling. And this connection is actually made even stronger when we consider this word pass on or passed by that is repeated over and over in this text. So take a look. Verse 18, and all his servants passed by him and passed on before the king. Verses 22 and 23. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. 
So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him, and all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Verse 24, and they set the ark of God, set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Verse 33, David said to them, if you pass on with me, you will be a burden to me. You might be saying, well, why, why is that so significant? What, what's going on here? Consider how the Bible describes Israel's entrance into the land centuries earlier in the book of Joshua. So we look at Joshua chapter 3, verse 1. And they came to the Jordan and lodged there before they passed over. Verse 6. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. Verse 11, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and it keeps going. It's found throughout Joshua chapter 3. And so when we're reading 2 Samuel chapter 15 about David and his men passing on, into the wilderness, we're supposed to be thinking, wow, that's what happened, the opposite of what happened in Joshua chapter 3, when God finally kept his promise, when God finally gave his people the land. And so when we're reading 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're supposed to be thinking, is this the end? Is this it? Has God given up? Have his promises failed? Is David's sin greater than the promises of God? Keep that at the back of your mind as we continue this text. We'll come back to it shortly. Let's jump to our next encounter. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both him and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So David is leaving. The priests and the Levites opt to leave with him. What's more, they bring the ark with them. They, like Ittai, they seem to grasp that there is a connection between God at work and his anointed king, David. And that's admirable. But, they, but David grasps something that they fail to see. David knows that at the end of the day, he is not the king. The Lord is the king. And the ark, We've seen this as we've been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel. The ark represents God's throne on earth. In the Psalms, it's referred to as the footstool of God's throne. And so what David is saying here by, by keeping, telling them to bring the ark back to Jerusalem, he's saying, you know what, that ark, it doesn't belong to me. That's not mine. I may be the king, but I have to answer to the true king. I have to answer to God, the Lord himself. And David is willing to wait upon the Lord to restore him rather than than presuming that he still has the Lord's blessing. 
He almost certainly has 2 Samuel chapter 12, the words of Nathan the prophet at the back of his mind. God pronounces judgment upon David for his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. We read this, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And we saw that David is forgiven, but who knows? Maybe it is God's plan that he will lose the kingdom because God is the true king. And far be it from David to take the ark with him because the Lord is the king. And as such, the ark must remain in Jerusalem. It must remain in the capital city because God is king. And it will be up to the Lord to bring David back to Jerusalem where he might worship once more. Verse 27, the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. These verses, what we just read and what came right before it, are are a really powerful juxtaposition here. We have to read them together because on the one hand, we have David willing to wait on the Lord to vindicate him and yet also David planning, setting up a resistance in Jerusalem. Even as David is waiting on the Lord to bring him back, he can also, with a clear conscience, set up a resistance network in Jerusalem in order to accomplish that goal. David understands that the sovereignty of God, God's complete control over all things, that in his sovereignty, God uses ordinary means. He uses planning. He uses action to accomplish his purposes. There is nothing wrong with trusting the Lord while also acting for what we are trusting God to accomplish. And so David refuses to bring the ark. He's not going to go that far. But also at the same time, he sends the priests back to Jerusalem so he has an understanding of the plot against him. And there's more we could say on that. Let's just keep reading to the final, uh, final encounter here. Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is, also, is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So David continues his journey to the east. He goes up the Mount of Olives, and there he stops and prays. And while he's on the Mount of Olives, he receives word that Ahithophel, his his dear friend, has betrayed him. David wrote Psalm 41 in response to this news. And in Psalm 41, he writes this, Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. 
This was devastating news for David. And so he prays for God to intervene, and almost instantly God begins to answer that prayer. Verse 32, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, if you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past. So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. David's friend Hushai arrives on the Mount of Olives. He's, he's disheveled in his appearance. And it shows that he's been mourning, just like all the other people that are on the Mount of Olives, just like David. And yet David, rather than allowing him to enter into exile with him, like he does with Ittai and the, these Gittites, he actually sends, them back, sends him back to Jerusalem. Sends him back to Jerusalem to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And that's exactly what he does. We'll get to that again in a couple weeks. The important thing as we get to the end of this chapter is to see that there is a little resistance network right in the middle of Absalom's government that will keep David informed of his son's movements. And the chapter ends with a lot of drama, doesn't it? Shows us just how close of a call this was for David. Actually, as I was reading this, I, I thought back to 1 Samuel, I think it's 26. Uh, it might be 27. David is fleeing from Saul. And David is, the text tells us David is on one side of the mountain and Saul is on this side. And they're like, Saul's chasing him. And he's about to get to where he can capture David. And then Saul receives word that the Philistines have invaded. And so he, he calls off his attack. And God saves David at the last second. And it's hard not to see that here, that God perfectly orchestrates timing so that David is safe, to spare David. Hushai makes it back to Jerusalem. David escapes, but only just. Now we're left wondering, well, okay, this is a riveting chapter. It's, it's got some inter interesting stuff in it, but what, what are we supposed to take out of this? As I go from here, how does this equip me to live a life that honors the Lord Jesus? And I think the key to grasping the significance of this chapter is, is found in this question of whether or not God has abandoned David. Whether or not David's sin is greater than God's commitment to his promises. And on the surface, that's exactly what it looks like. David flees Jerusalem. He heads for the wilderness. We're left thinking, well, you know what? God might be gracious. He might be loving, but only to a point. Because David's sin crosses that point, everything falls apart. And he's left on his own. 
These promises of God, they're unraveling, and the sufferings of David seem to be the prime example that God might be gracious to you, but don't you dare screw up too much or he'll abandon you. Now, is that what this passage is trying to teach us? Now, we could, we could of course, just jump up forward a chapter or two and see, well, of course not, that's, that's not the answer. But I think this chapter gives us even greater assurance of God's commitment to his people. It's, not, it's just unwavering, and it comes from this passage. As we work our way through this text, did, did you notice this change that came over David from what we saw over the last couple chapters? Over the past few chapters, David has been marked by inaction. When he does act, like in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we wish he, he wouldn't have. There's this gap between David and the Lord. But here, David is quick to pray, quick to act. The first time in chapters, maybe years. But right here, David is acting primarily for the sake of other people. He relies on the Lord in the midst of his suffering and his affliction. And perhaps more importantly, he is content to wait on the Lord for his vindication. He's completely committed to the Lord's plan, to the Lord's will. And here on the outskirts of Jerusalem, we see he is a model of faith and obedience. And a thousand years after David, David's son is perfectly faithful and perfectly obedient on the outskirts of Jerusalem. You see the way in this chapter that David foreshadows King Jesus in this passage. Just like David, Jesus was rejected by his people. John's gospel starts this way. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Just like David, Jesus was betrayed by a close friend. In fact, Psalm 41 that David wrote about Ahithophel, Jesus later quotes that as a reference to his betrayal by Judas. John 13, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Just like David, Jesus left Jerusalem crossing the brook Kidron. The only time in the New Testament that the Kidron Valley is mentioned at all is just before Jesus' arrest, before his eventual crucifixion, as he's leaving Jerusalem in order to pray. We read this in John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And of course, that place that, that David stopped and prayed, the Mount of Olives, Jesus does the exact same. In Mark 14, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There are some intentional parallels between David on the outskirts of Jerusalem and Jesus on the outskirts of Jerusalem in the Gospels. But perhaps the differences are the key to understanding the weight of this passage. David, even though he was rejected by his nation, wasn't rejected by everyone. He left Jerusalem with a group of faithful friends and servants, but not Jesus. 
Jesus, when he is arrested in the garden, we read these sobering words in Mark 14, and they all left him and fled. David's suffering is the result of his sin and his disobedience, but Jesus' suffering was for our sin and our disobedience. Speaking of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' obedience was complete and full. David was faithful and obedient in suffering, but only as a shadow of what was to come. When we were going through Mark years ago, and we got to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think my sermon was called The Crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in the garden, Jesus dies to his own will to remain obedient to his Father. And we see Jesus pray this, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was completely committed to his Father's will, even though it led to the cross. And in his obedience, Jesus not only bore our punishment, but he grants us the right to join in his, inglorious, his glorious inheritance. Paul puts it this way, but when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. I love that word. Heirs, according to the hope of eternal life. Here's the reality of this passage. One that I hope lets us marvel at the story of the Bible story of what Christ has done for us. David and his faith and his obedience and suffering points us to the glory of Jesus's faith and obedience and suffering for us. Suffering for us. There on the outskirts of Jerusalem, David points us to his greater son, Jesus. In his faith and in his obedience, he points us to his perfectly faithful and perfectly obedient son. So go back to that question we asked earlier. For that matter, go back to the very beginning of our time. Talking about hope in the midst of suffering. How does this passage give us hope? When we are faced with despair, and suffering and affliction, how can we endure? It's because of the cross. 
You see, the overarching message of this chapter isn't be like David when you suffer. Now, that would, that would be a good idea. That'd be wise. You should be like David when you suffer. You should remain faithful. You should cry out to God. You should remain obedient. You should look to God for deliverance. All of that is true. But it's not the main focus of this text. This text is rooting our hope somewhere deeper than your ability, my ability, to remain faithful in the midst of suffering. This text is saying because Jesus was faithful and obedient, we can have hope when we suffer. That the promises of God that seem like they are unraveling are secure. They're guaranteed because of Christ Jesus. That's where hope comes from. That's how we fight despair in the midst of suffering. That's how we fight the feelings of just wanting to give up because Jesus remained faithful on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just like his forerunner David. And because of Jesus, we can have hope no matter what comes our way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you for sticking to your Father's plan. God, when we feel like despairing, or giving up, throwing in the towel, help us to remember what you have done for us, that the promises of God are secure because of you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.